Hi, I'm not your friend, but you listen to me all the time. I'm never around, but I'm always available. I'm always free, but you should pay me. I am your podcast host, Anna Marie Cox. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I have a long list of Glacier names I'd like to read out to start this podcast. So please put aside 20 minutes for this disquisition. Dan, people can already tell we're having a good time, which is usually a bad sign, I think, for whatever it is we're talking about. Yes, that's 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 exactly correct. Um, so uh, listeners probably already know this is Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of man-milieu, relationship hypotheses, and action network theory. Ooh. Today, we'll be talking about the Ministry for the Future. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Contact, the movie, A Train to Busan, and then we're going to do something really fun. I mean, I guess Train to Busan is fun, but Train we to Busan is something. fun. Yeah. We deserve like a fun book. That's yes. my. <laughs> that's a fun, my, good book. Yes, I agree. A fun, yes. good book. Yes. Not just a book that's fun to talk about, no. but an actual. We're not going to do book. Farewell Atlantis, for example, or are we? Uh, <laughs> no, although it is a murder mystery set in space, which is. <laughs> As listeners know, my jam. If you aren't already a patron of our fine show, please consider becoming one. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash space the nation. You can also rate and review us or tell your friends and neighbors. We have a newsletter that Mm -hmm. comes out pretty much weekly, and you can sign up for it at tinyletter.com slash space the nation. Dan, what's another way people can get in touch with us? You know what, Anna? There's this really like up and coming site called Twitter, and we are both active <laughs> on it. I am at Dan Dresner, and she is at Anna Marie Cox. Thank you, Dan. Dan, how are you? Well, that's a weird question to answer <laughs> now. I, I'm trying to it's think. It's loaded. If people yeah. are listening to this in, you know, in real time, the week that we are recording it, yeah, it's There's a good a... question for my friend, the IR specialist. So how do I put this? There's a macro and micro answer to this. The macro answer is, is that I'm, I've been a little bit busy this week, Anna. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> happening and I'm trying to keep on top of it all and I'm failing miserably at it, but I am trying. That said, at the micro sense, and I suspect this might be true for you, I'm in a pretty good place because you know what? I actually went on vacation for a few days last week yeah. and that really does make a difference in one's mindset. I know that the world is on fire right now and this book suggests that the world is going to continue to be on fire and we will talk about that but that said it was really nice to go on vacation on it it was really really nice and i'm not going to apologize for it yeah don't don't apologize i also we managed to not quite overlap but have kind Mm -hmm. of synchronous vacations and i was feeling a little guilty about going on vacation because i'm not currently working full-time and i was like what is going to be the difference Like, why should I go on vacation when I don't really have, like, a full work schedule? But, hey, if you can do it, I advocate for it now. (laughs) It does make a difference. I felt like I was away, you know? Like, I had fewer cares. And I did mostly ignore the new the very big news that we're not even really naming so yeah <laughs> well frankly Anna, by the time our listeners get to this there could be other big news that they're thinking about yeah. instead so you know we, it's just we we can just right. reference to it vaguely <laughs> okay well there is something that will be constant um unless ev- everything ends which mm-hmm. i guess is a possibility uh, whenever people listen to this which is dan there's a problem in the world mm-hmm this book is about it. It's why we're talking about this book. Want to tell us a little more? 
Yes, I would like to tell you more, Anna. Let me explain exactly <laughs> why we have chosen this book. We have chosen this book because we are intellectual masochists, Anna. All right? <laughs> After Emma Carey, which I grant took five weeks and, you know, was entertaining, but perhaps did not have the highest amount of nutritional content in those films, we wanted to dive into a book that was quality science right. fiction. All yes. right? Yes. Fair enough. I blame, frankly, our shared association with the University of Chicago for this choice, okay? Because if you either teach at the University of Chicago or were a student at the University of Chicago, you think that intellectual pain is good. You think, yeah, you oh know, my God, yes. You know, you yes. believe, yes, I need to read, you know, the, the, the biggest, fattest book on something possible, okay? Yep. And I, frankly, speaking of the University of Chicago, also blame Barack Obama because we picked this book because it was one of Barack Obama's favorite books, I believe, of 2020. And therefore, he inflicted all 563 pages of dead tree stuff on us. Okay, And, and you actually have the dead tree version. So. I do have the dead tree version. I, I'm sorry. This is where I am. Yes, old school. I, I really do like to read the books in print. Antediluvian is funny, though, I know. too. Yeah, yeah, but I know you like to read them on paper, yes, no matter I what like the to mark cost, them up. as it were. And and, and I, I do want to continue something, which is we, there were really good reasons to read this book. Climate change mm -hmm. is a real problem. Cli-fi yes. is good. And this was a very hard topic. Like writing science fiction that starts from the present day and then goes forward might be the sort of biggest hurdle because, it you know, you have to you don't get a generous willing suspension of disbelief with that because everyone is aware of the mm -hmm. real world. So this was really hard, but still, Anna, I hated this goddamn book. Well, okay. So I am also tempted to say I hated it, but I think we we talked about this book a lot <laughs> before we recorded this, this. And I think it's more fair to say that I am furious with this book more than I hated it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yes. That's actually a better way of putting it. I, I agree. Yes. Okay. Because hate, there are hate is a different I, I way liked of thinking about, about it. it. Yeah, yeah. And also, it is. it has many redeeming qualities. Many. First of all, it's one. I mean, we'll get to this at the end. I'll say it again at the end. But yeah. some of the ideas in here are things that I've pretty well read, I think, mm -hmm. on climate change and solutions to it. But some of the stuff in here was new. Yeah. And if you look at this as a white paper and not a novel, <laughs> like it has some interesting ideas. It has some interesting ideas. White papers are better written than this novel, Anna. I'm sorry. Okay. It is it, sure. I am just saying, like there are things I hadn't heard of, yeah. and I am now glad that I heard of them. I yes. will probably read more about them mm -hmm. elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> where I don't also have to read the other shit that surrounds the interesting ideas in this book. Mm -hmm. But but most importantly, like you said, cli-fi is is an, is kind of an important genre right now, right. and this book affected a lot of people. Like we did not like it. No. It got rave reviews. A lot of people felt like it dramatized the sort of did know, it get existential rave reviews of on climate it? change. And I, I, I want to no, I want to push back a little bit on this cuz like like you I started reading the reviews after I finished the book. Oh, okay. And you know, the reviews were more like this is an important book, which oh, I you're right, now you're right, realize you're right, you're right, that you're is right, code right. for whenever someone reads like whatever this is a listeners whenever someone says this is a very important book that is code for i really wanted to like this book and the topic is important but i can't say it's that good because like yeah, I, that's how right. i 
Yeah, sorry. Um, you, you are correct. And, and it, but it is, it sort of, the thing is, they're not wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah absolutely correct. I, I do believe, I read, so I read, I'll say a little bit more about the New Yorker profile of Kim Stanley Robinson that came out um, a month ago. Mm-hmm. But in it, you know, it makes the argument that a lot of people felt like this book dramatized the problem in a way that they hadn't fully gotten their heads around before. Mm-hmm. Which, you know what? It's important. Last week, the most recent UN climate change report came out, mm-hmm. and it's it's tough sledding. Yeah. Like, you, you think this book is hard to read? Right. <laughs> I'm just going to toss out some of, the, some of the things that were in it, because as I was writing this script and thinking about how much I didn't enjoy reading this book, I did have to kind of be like, well, you know, point taken. So 3.3 billion people's daily lives are highly vulnerable to climate change and 15 times more likely to die from extreme weather. By 2050, a billion people will face coastal flooding risks. And more people will be forced out of their homes from weather disasters, especially flooding, sea level rises, and tropical cyclones. If the world warms just another nine-tenths of a degree Which Celsius, it is likely to. The amount of land burned by wildfires globally will increase by 35%. Four billion people, which is approximately half the world's population, already experience severe water scarcity at least one month out of the year and here in north america from montana to northern mexico they have had their driest 22 year period in over 1200 years so there's that and and the other thing i kind of wanted to point out sort of to the i found the redeeming quality of this book to be some interesting ideas Mm -hmm. like looking at the you know just the you know executive summary of this report. I don't think the real report would give me much more. Solutions are pretty like general at yeah. this point. Like one of the solutions I'm quoting: create no build zones. Dan, we would create no build zones <laughs> and let nature take its course. Which actually yeah. is kind of something in this book. Yeah, sure. Think about it. Yeah, but although yeah. in the book there are some mechanisms yes. for how that would happen, and I know that people at the UN and elsewhere have mechanisms in mind. It's just not part of our discussion a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I get, you know, it's easier actually to write about the horrifying statistics mm-hmm. than it is to write about some of the solutions. So I do just kind of want to give the faint praise. <laughs> There are solutions printed in this book or presented in this book. I have lots of problems with how they're presented. (laughs) Not just in the way they're written, but other stuff. (laughs) You know, part of this, I confess, might be that, like, I I really still got angry reading this at the book. But I think Mm -hmm. I am now thinking about it also angry at Publishers Weekly, which in the cover of the book describes it as a sweeping optimistic portrayal of humanity's ability to cooperate (laughs) in the face of disaster. (laughs) And you know what? That's not an accurate description of this book, Anna. I mean, I no, it, no, it isn't. No. And so, like, maybe that was just it's it's not a description of their ability to cooperate at all. In fact, that's one of the things I didn't like about the yeah. book is that it's not there's not a description of how they cooperate. There's right. a lot of just like it just happened. They cooperated. Just they cooperated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, this hmm. leads us to you know a good question. Let's get to the story behind the story, Anna. What you got? 
Um, I was going to refuse to do this part because I was so angry at it <laughs> and because it's it's obviously a master's thesis and not a novel. But I know from the Discord, we have listeners who are fans mm-hmm. of Kim Stanley Robinson and also many people are fans. Right. Uh, he's won multiple Hugo and Nebula Awards as well as the Heinlein Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. An older New Yorker piece said he is, quote, generally acknowledged as one of the greatest living science fiction writers and those New Yorker fact checkers, Dan, are supposed to be very good. <laughs> yes. You, like, you there's know, no citation for that, but... It got past the New Yorker fact yeah. checkers. So, like, I mean, you're, you're thinking that's generally accepted as fact. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was delighted to find out that he studied with Marxist philosopher Frederick Jameson, mm-hmm. who uh, is shares some intellectual DNA with friend of the pod, Theodore Adorno. <laughs> However, Dan, I really wish I'd read that recent New Yorker profile <laughs> because all the signs are there <laughs> that this is a science fiction novel for people who don't really like science fiction. <laughs> but just to say, and there are include people Barack who like Obama fiction. in that. Scene. Right, 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 right. Yes. right. Total poser nerd. No, not the nerd <laughs> I thought he was. And there's a little bit about expectations here, right? Like when I pick up a book that's called a science fiction novel, I expect it to be a science fiction novel. I think that's a reasonable expectation, Anna. I really do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And this is not no. that. It's barely fiction. It's just barely fiction. And, and, and here's the thing, Dan. I do think if we had read this profile and talked about it, we would not have read this book because <laughs> would we have liked the book any better if we had known going in that, quote, Robinson's novels, in Robinson's novels, the protagonists are often diplomats, scholars, and scientists who fight to keep their future societies from repeating our mistakes. Or would you be intrigued that Robinson's plots turn on international treaties and post-capitalist financial systems? (laughs) Or that a typical Robinson novel ends with an academic conference at which researchers propose ideas for improving civilization. Oh, that's hot. That, that, that... That's so hot, Anna. <laughs> are you, what are you talking about? That's like, you know, I I live for novels and, that end with that. And, yeah. and this is really, I mean, one close to your heart. Would you have been put off by knowing that for Robinson, scholarly and diplomatic meetings are among our species' highest achievements? Anna, as someone who's gone to many of those <laughs> meetings, I can assure Robinson that that is not the case. There's just no other way. Like, you know. Our species' highest achievements, Dan. No. No. <laughs> no. No. Anyone who's ever been in an apps in Baltimore in over Labor Day weekend, there is no way that is true. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, that's the, I'm going to falsify know. that I, argument. I went to a few AHAs there and they we were go. like... Pretty, pretty happening. Yeah. All that said, he seems like a very nice person. Yes. I will say. He enjoys going ultra light hiking in the Sierras, which is like not even bringing water, <laughs> which is cray cray for a 69 year old man. But, but impressive. And he is married to an environmental scientist. He he writes his novels outside. Oh. So I, I am sure he is delightful. I am sure he is delightful. I am absolutely 100% certain he is more delightful than this novel. <laughs> And now, Dan, before we get into the plot, we have a a section we call Chekhov's What's It. (laughs) Dan? So Chekhov's What's It is what appears early in whatever narrative we are reading that will then feature later. And Anna, this is my formal protest that I am not playing this game with this book. (laughs) Because for that to happen, it would require an actual novel. And that's not what this is. Okay? I stand by my assertion. 
I am protesting this this part of the, the <laughs> podcast because you can only do this when there's a proper novel and I don't think this is a proper novel. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Fair, Fair enough. enough. I appreciate that perspective. <laughs> I somewhat disagree, <laughs> but only because I want to claim that there is a Chekhov's dirigible. <laughs> because I like saying dirigible. <laughs> she really does. And it took her. way too long to actually get to a description of what flying on a commercial passenger dirigible, dirigible was like. There, it's, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. In the plot that they come into being. Yes. <laughs> and then for hundreds of pages, you don't hear about what it's like to fly in one. And that actually, that was one of the main reasons I was angry at the book. And then at the last part, you do get a description of it. Sounds pretty cool, actually. Mm. And that's another thing. Like the few faint things I liked about the book was like, oh, that sounds neat to go on a commercial dirigible <laughs> and to just say dirigible a bunch. I just like that's I. You know, although he calls them airships a lot, which... He should have brought back he, Zeppelin. That's all I'm saying. What? Well, he's going to choose the most boring way to talk about anything. That's so, true. of course, he's going to call dirigibles airships, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Speaking of the most boring way to talk about anything, Dan, do you want to talk about the plot? Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh! A touch, a touch, I do confess it. So, let's start with Act 1, uh, the one with the characters. So, <laughs> listeners... <laughs> You might think it's hard to summarize a 563-page Cli-Fi novel, and you would be right. So to do this, I'm not actually going to divide the novel into four acts, um, because you can't really do that with the Ministry of the Future. So instead, I'm going to divide it. You know, he's got a hundred and, I think, eight odd chapters in this book. I'm going to do it and by... And they're odd. Yeah, they're yeah, odd. they're odd. <laughs> So we're going to start with basically each section is going to focus on different aspects of the novel. And with this one, we're actually going to focus on the protagonist. Yes. So-called protagonist. Yes. We're um, both using air are, quotes with this. There are two characters in this book. And I, well, there's one. There's a few others, but like they're, you barely. Yeah, there, There's a few others, but they don't really get much. No, no, they don't. <laughs> no. They're kind of exposition fonts and. Yeah. That's it. But anyway, so our two so, yes, quote, unquote, so, protagonists. Right. So we started, I believe, in 2025. Frank May is caught in a horrible heat wave in India that kills tens of millions of people. The episode understandably traumatizes him and leads him to take Mary Murphy hostage in Zurich. Who is Mary Murphy? Mary is the head of the Ministry for the Future, a subsidiary body under the Paris Accords intended to advocate for future generations. Frank tells Mary that she's not doing enough and must take more drastic action. After the Swiss police detect something out of the ordinary, Frank escapes. Mary is unharmed. Frank stays in the shadows in Zurich. Mary's an environmental refugee, I believe, and is then eventually arrested. Mary visits him and soon comes around to Frank's point of view. Her ministry starts taking bolder action. We'll talk about that a little more later. Soon there are attempts to assassinate her and her colleagues, leading the Swiss to take her to the mountains. Eventually, her ministry succeeds in bending the climate change curve. Frank is eventually released from prison and introduces Mary to his friend Art, who flies an eco-friendly... Anna? Dirigible. (laughs) Frank, alas, dies from a tumor, but Mary goes on a round-the-world trip in Art's... Dirigible. And at the end of the trip, canoodles with Art. Um, The dirigible captain. (laughs) Anna, I suppose I like 
these parts of the book best, but I confess I found the characters to be thinner than cardboard. I mean, mm-hmm. hell, there are chapters in this book, which we will get to, devoted to a carbon atom and a photon. And frankly, I think the carbon atom had more personality than Frank did. <laughs> okay? This is an actual line of dialogue for Frank in this novel. Don't split hairs with me. I'm not here for hair splitting. <laughs> There are some lovely pieces of prose in this book, but there are a lot of genuine clunky, like just dead, badly written prose. And I am not going to make excuses about that. I mean, he clearly has more passion for the science in in the book, and that's better written. I mean, frankly. And I did tell you in one of our conversations prior to taping um, that I would read a novel about Mary and Frank because that would be a novel, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, there would have to be characters and plot development yeah, and, you know, yeah, epiphanies yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. Yes, and, yeah. and, and they are sketches of characters. They have a history right. and motivations. Yeah. And what makes them our quote-unquote protagonists is that they have interior lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am. It is safe to say these are the only two characters that get that. Yes, that is. I, I am in complete agreement with that, yes. There are people who walk on and off stage and mainly <laughs> plot devices, but... Frank and Mary, we get access to their inner thoughts, like who they are. Now and, I, I now I kind of want to read, like, I want to know if someone will write a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version of this. But So, like, not of the main characters, but maybe, oh, but, like, Badim uh, and Tatiana. Badim! Yeah. I want to know. What yeah, Badim was Badim. a hell of a lot more compelling. I wanted to know a I, lot more about Badim, yeah. yeah. So much more. He's the black bag guy yeah. of the Ministry for the Future, yes. and that would be fascinating. Yes. And we'll talk more about that oh, later. Oh, yes, we will. And I would love to read a novel that's about the survivor of a climate catastrophe and the bureaucrat who should have saved him. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's an interesting setup. Yeah. Does not get explored. No. No. (laughs) And honestly, I mean, this is when I really started getting angry at the novel because what should be the tensest scene, which is when Frank takes Mary hostage, Mm -hmm. has got to be one of the most didactic conversations I have read in pro. It it just was not... You said there was Brechtian? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was like Brechtian, but with extra layers of didacticism. Yeah. What if we do Brecht but take out any literary merit whatsoever? It was it was it was like that. Yes. It was very frustrating. You know, it's one of the worst scenes. Like there when we talk about what we liked about it, the scene when she's caring for him in hospice is actually pretty affecting. Yes. But up until then, I mean, it's amazing you you get to a point where you care about them because their interactions Yeah. At one point, she reflects that all this visiting she does of him is a kind of torture mm-hmm. for him. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no shit. Why are you doing it? And actually, it's weird to me that she only like I had been thinking this is kind of torture for both of them right. the entire time. Yeah. And that was sort of like, I wonder what, you know, like, how is it? What kind of thing is she trying to do? Why is he putting up with it? Nope, just not addressed. Just like, Okay. The other thing I wanted to say about them is that they're both white Anglos. Correct. So Frank is American, I believe, and Mary is Irish. Right. And I'm not, you know, representation for representation's sake. I mean, sometimes that's great. Mm -hmm. And there are characters that are not white Mm -hmm. in the novel. But most climate refugees Mm -hmm. and climate disaster survivors are not white. Mm -hmm. So it would have been maybe interesting to have that be a difference between them mm-hmm. or to have mary be not white to kind of flip the script as it were that would have been interesting right actually. yes no, i agree and instead we get two people who have i mean 
quite a lot of privilege, even after the terrible things that happened to Frank, mm -hmm. right? And so there, I mean, there are so many opportunities for tension, really, and they just don't happen. Yeah. No, and, and so, this goes on with the rest of the plot. There are actually things that in theory should be exciting plot developments, but that are treated as, again, just leaden and there is no reveal and it's just... In I would, there are multiple bombings. <laughs> I don't just, think I have yelled at a novel, be better, as often as I have yelled at this novel. Like, you know, again, it, it was genuinely, there were wasted opportunities. And in some ways, and, and given how Robinson is generally praised as the novelist, that actually made me extremely angry. Mm -hmm. There was narrative left on the table that could have been exploited. Oh, oh, Dan, I know this is going to move us along. Yeah. Are you saying, like, as a social scientist, you did not appreciate all the social science? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Anna. So let's move on to Act 2, the one with the social science. And yes, yes, dear listeners, I am naming these acts after Friends episodes because it is the most <laughs> antithetical thing I can think of to this novel, and that's how angry I am at this novel. So... You might ask, how does the Ministry of the Future manage... <laughs> I still am asking that question, yes. How? How does the Ministry for the Future manage to reduce greenhouse gases? Well, here are the political developments that I believe <laughs> make this possible. So, first, the heat wave in India leads to an extremely eco-friendly government there. It also leads to the creation of a terrorist group named the Children of Kali, and they start to take violent action against major carbon emitters. Mary learns that her chief of staff, Badim, has apparently been reading Glenn Beck novels and decided <laughs> to create a black ops unit at the Ministry for the Future that also... Or Edward Abbey. Okay, fair enough. Edward Abbey yeah, also. Yeah. That also takes direct action against carbon emitters, but like more sane direct action, I believe. It's, it's, it's a little vague there. Combined, these two... Terrorist groups, there's no other way to put this, you know, lead to fun events like Crash Day, when a bunch of aircraft crash out of the sky. 60 jet airliners. Yes, just crash in one day, which pretty much and puts an end 20. to commercial aviation. Yeah. A week later. Yes. Let's just, I mean, I stick up with this. Let's pause and think about that. What if that happened, Dan? You know what wouldn't have happened? I think what wouldn't have happened was everyone would have decided, you know what, the terrorists are right. Maybe we should, you know, stop flying. Um, but it would also be like, I mean, 9-11 is our only comparable. Yeah, and, and you know, the, let's put it this way. The global we response. Didn't, we didn't walk away from 9-11 no. being like, you know what? <laughs> no, 9-11 led the United States to invade and attempt to, like, pacify Afghanistan for 20 years. You don't think there's going to be a similar response? In, in this sort of scenario? No, this is one of those. And just the cost of human life. Yeah. I mean, just there's. All right. OK, we have to finish. We have to finish. So, keep going. so in addition That's... to Crash Day, there is also and I have to admit, I laughed at this chapter, but probably not in the way that Robinson meant me to laugh. What I will call Davos <laughs> Terrorist Theater. When World Economic Forum <laughs> participants are taken hostage in Davos and basically treated like they're in a Maoist indoctrination camp. I actually think it was meant to be funny. Okay. Are you sure? I I, I, I also laughed. Yeah. I mean, like, because there was sort of an absurdist element to even the 
terrorist side yeah, of it. That's true. You know? And I will say, actually, Robinson did and, and make... Of all the terrorism that happens in the book. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, Robinson <laughs> did make the, the, the narrator in that chapter actually sound like a Davos douchebag. So, like... Yeah. And that, that was intentional, and so that was fair. Yes, yes. That's yeah. a good point. All right. Apparently, you know, in addition, several countries, including the United States, experienced myriad ecological catastrophes, including an atmospheric river in Los Angeles, leading to various forms of regime change. <laughs> I, I, hold on. A series of macroeconomic and geopolitical events called, and I quote, the Trembling Twenties, the Great Turn, the Super Depression. And apparently this all just causes the great powers to get on board with combating climate change and all the little states to start new cooperative economic structures. Uh, this also <laughs> occurs with various strikes and marches on capitals. And the final reason that this all happens is the billions of hands just being waved in the air. <laughs> by Robinson. I was say, like, you write all of this in passive voice. So does Robinson. Yes. Like oh, the hand waving going on here is so massive, <laughs> listeners, that I cannot begin to to Whoa. describe like just every time I'm reading this is like, oh, OK, so that happened. Why did it happen exactly? Like why? It, it, yeah. it, you've, it, well, you've solved part of the, the problem of, of getting rid of carbon based fuel, Dan. It's the hand waving. Yes, it's it's the massive hand waving. Yes. <laughs> That's it. It generates, you know, wind turbine energy. There we and, go. But you know. in, in social science, we call hand waving when we say that someone comes up with a theory or a, a story and they don't really explain how that works. And listeners, that's what I think Robinson does. He has parts of a story, but there is no serious consideration given at all to any kind of, of sort of reactionary uh, movement in response to some of these steps. There is no politics here, per se. We'll get to this a little more when we talk about the IR in the book, but I, I'm sorry. I just, it, you know, this is the interstitial chapter where I say, do you know what I am? I'm a goddamn international relations theorist and I don't buy this novel. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. The key moment, however, is when Mary convinces the world's central bankers to issue a digital currency called the Carboni, which pays for carbon sequestration. The central bankers are initially resistant, but after many, many bad things happen, eventually buy in, and most carbon emitters realize that they can make more by keeping their hydrocarbons in the ground and buying into the Carboni, and the Carboni eventually supplants the dollar. And so again, Anna, how to put this, I... Once again, officially protest calling this book a novel. To paraphrase Tom Stoppard, this book is twice as long as Das Kapital and only half as funny. <laughs> it's clear that Robinson has done a fair amount of research, and a lot of that research is actually completely accurate. But to call the chapters where he relies on that research nonfiction is fucking insulting to nonfiction writers. It really is. <laughs> it really, really is. Nonfiction writers are better than that. All right? That chapter where he goes through the alphabet listing of all the cooperative groups on the planet that have come to this conference. I almost burned that yeah. page, Anna. I wanted to put some carbon into the atmosphere. So, yeah, I I remember that section <laughs> quite vividly because I started reading it and then I just started paging ahead. Like, <laughs> Wait, really? Really? Mm -hmm. Like, no. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Just an alphabetical listing of perhaps 200? 
Like, I don't even know. Like, it, it, it I will say this. He it, gets to it all of them. It goes on for pages. Yeah. It goes on for, pa- like, five or six pages. And it's just, the, you don't even get a physical description. But right. what it appears to be is people standing up at a meeting and saying, I'm here to represent. It's, like, literally the opening of a meeting where everyone says, all right, say your name. And, like, so it's, like, it. it Have yeah. you ever been to a Model UN? Yes, I, I did Model UN. And yeah. people get up. There is sometimes, like, a section where people just get up and they yeah. Yeah. introduce. It. That's it. That's it. Yep. It's not even like the fun, sexy times of Model UN. <laughs> it's, it's... That is for Space the Nation After Dark, Anna. We will talk right. about that later. Yes. And I guess my genuine question is, did you you actually read those chapters? Because I confess, <laughs> I, I once I realized what was happening, I was like, am I going to get anything out of knowing the names of all the different Brazilian indigenous yeah. cooperatives? No, I'm not. So... <sighs> I did a lot of page skipping when I was reading okay. this. Not necessarily that that chapter might. I I think I did actually want to see like, did he really going to go through all of them? And yeah, as he turns out, he did. But yeah, th- I mean, you and I I think both noticed a trend, which is there are a variety of chapters or sections of this book where literally it just consists of long lists of shit. <laughs> like I'm not kidding, listeners. Yeah. There extinct is extinct species. It is. It's powerful to yeah. read a list of extinct species. Right. It, it is. Yeah. But. You only can pull that trick everyone like how many once times or twice in a novel, I think, <laughs> as opposed to the thirty or I, I don't know how many times. But like when he actually started listing the glaciers, I actually like was like, "You're really gonna do it? You're really gonna do this? Wow, okay." And I'm sorry, <laughs> like I know it's important that the glaciers stay, and it's it's actually a, that was one of the more interesting things was the technical solution, which we'll get to about fixing the glaciers. But I'm like, I'm sorry, the glacier names mean nothing to me. <laughs> they just don't. Can you? You've also, there's another genre of chapter. Yes. And it, it falls under, I believe, under the social science heading where it, it's literally um, the, the minutes of meetings. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, those are not the most riveting chapters, listeners. Really? Nope. 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 Dan, our species' highest achievements. <laughs> meetings. I don't know. I haven't been to a lot of meetings lately. You've 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 been to more meetings than I have. I have been recently. I literally just I, I was at a meeting. I was at a virtual meeting <laughs> before we started recording this. Oh, an academic meeting. The heroes of our time. I I can't say anymore, Anna. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there was some heroic stuff said, and it was certainly more coherent than the chapters in this book. <laughs> so we won't punish people by reading huge excerpts, but I do want to read one paragraph because it made me laugh <laughs> again for the wrong reasons. So there is a sort of celebratory COP58, right, yeah. at the end of the book, yeah. where they, they, the carbon emissions have gone down. Right. So this is, a, this is a paragraph from that section. <clears throat> so the last two days of this meeting consisted of one day of people summarizing, listing, and celebrating various aspects of the positive changes made since the agreement was signed. The second day was devoted to listing and describing some of the outstanding problems they had yet to solve if they were to secure the progress inherent or promised by the things mentioned on the first day. Both were very busy days. <laughs> uh, what? Sorry? What? Huh? Sorry? He just... So there's... This is like meta boring because <laughs> he just described a conference. Yeah summarizing listing and celebrating various aspects of you you could make that sentence super short there was a conference <laughs> <laughs> there was a conference no the, the sentence was the minutes the were whole, the minutes were approved that's like yeah <laughs> you know and then and then i was also shocked that he didn't 
we didn't get verbatim transcriptions of the summarizing, listing, and celebrating various aspects. You know what? Two, one word for you on a sequel. That'll be in the sequel. There you go. Yeah. And then I guess you already covered this with with um, the 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 waving of the hands. Yes. But what in the actual fuck? <laughs> I mean, how did any of this happen? We get these exhaustive descriptions of various scientific experiments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there are these massive shifts in politics, in public opinion, and in policy. In society. In society. Yeah. And they are written yeah. in literally in passive voice. Mm-hmm. And the outcomes are just from someone who's kind of been on the ground for some of this. <laughs> like, super optimistic. Yep. I, I, the only comparison, if I, if I think this is right. So it would be like someone like 20 years from now writing about the, mm-hmm. the George Floyd protest and saying something like, demonstrations happened that led to full reparations for black Americans. And racism ended. And racism ended. And like, yeah. I I can kind of believe that in 20 years we could have reparations. That's like, I could see how these protests would dominoes, you know, like, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. optimistic, but sure. But if I read- Right, there's a path. I'm not saying right. it's going to happen, but, uh, but yeah, if I there's read a non-zero that sentence as like a future yeah. person, like in right. a textbook, well, if you read that sentence in a fucking paper, you would be angry as a professor. Like, you would be like, this is not how you write about things. <laughs> Please trace out the causal mechanisms yeah. a little more explicitly. Yes! <laughs> and also, it's like, to do my social justice warrior bit, it's the erasure of activists. Mm-hmm. There is so much work on the ground that goes into all of this, right? And that's what's offensive about him saying that academics and scientists and politicians and, you know, diplomats are here. They're not, it's not that they're not heroes. Yeah, we are heroes, Anna, so shut right. the fuck up now. But <laughs> it's that... This in the book, they are not really the heroes. Correct. The heroes are the people who get the shit done. Arguably, the terrorists, which I want to talk more about. <laughs> which we will. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I said before, he actually makes terrorism somehow boring and empty, <laughs> and and even even weirder, empty of like moral questions. Mm-hmm. You know. You don't yeah. hear about the explosions. You don't hear about like near escapes, and you don't hear about the victims. No, no. All of, I mean, I will say this: Robinson is consistent. All of the things that drive this, but whether it's terrorist incidents or like, I think at one point he says like five million people marching on Tiananmen yes, Square. Yes. You know, which like, just ha- in which a is, sentence. It, it, it just happens in a sentence. That's it. The, the, hey, you know, the, again, the Kurds establish <laughs> right. a state, man. <laughs> this right. Like that's a sentence. That's a sentence in the book. <laughs> you would think after 563 pages there could be a little more detail to those things, but no, no. Instead, we have to read about the photo life of the photon. You know, that's the the yes. It is. Um, and, and again, what, there's so much detail. You get angry when stuff is left out, right? This is a, a pretty serious criticism for me. There is literally one section it's not even a whole chapter where he talks about gender oppression and climate change and capitalism Mm -hmm. and it's mentioned Mm -hmm. at the tail end of that last cop conference right yes and in that section he makes he observes that wow people really should pay more attention to this like Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
yeah. and and that actually made me realize oh okay he doesn't really engage with race at all and this is going to sound maybe odd to some of our listeners but but lgbtq rights I know that doesn't seem like it intersects with climate change, but it does. Like, I mean, it was a real serious problem in refugee camps is what trans and gay people do. Like, I, I mean, the truth is he's not interested in the refugees. That's, well, that's a good point. But it's just like he, there's like whole categories of people. Yeah. That he pretends to care about. But doesn't act. It's it's almost the classic, like you know how the yeah the, the refugees the, the, don't. We we don't really get like we get a couple of chapters that are narrated by refugees, but they're right. And actually, like the the kid whose I think mother marries Frank yeah. is the narrator for one chapter, and that that was there was a brief moment where I was like, okay, I'm interested in learning more about this character, and we never. Yeah, that's it. It again, it's just it's just sort of left there. You know, the traditional critique of. Liberals in the United States is always that they care about people as categories, mm-hmm. but not as individuals. There's a way in which that's really what's going on in this novel, which is there's a discussion of climate refugees, but it's not personalized. It's not. I mean, the advantage of a novel as a structure for telling the story is that presumably you can put a face on the various things that you should care about. And he doesn't do that. They're incredibly generic like chapters uh, that are supposedly yeah. t- told in first person from a refugee. Yes. Like, it's just like, we left the homeland. I mean, right. like, I think there's liter- there's one that's told from the point of view of an older woman who's, I believe, been in the camps for like 19 years or something. Like, it's a crazy, it's, it's, yeah. it's a yeah. lot of time. And right. all we get is she was there for all that time. Also, yeah. uh, the UN does the, uh, what are the passports? The, what's, the Nansen the Nas- passports. Nansen passports, they just happen. Yeah. They just like, yep. people accept yep. them. Again, j- to bring up this sort of weirdly specific LGBTQ thing, there are lots of countries that have problems accepting <laughs> certain kinds of refugees. It's part of the billion hands that are waved in right. this novel, Anna. So, Do we, Should we say what those on. passports are, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes. The dance and passports are a reference actually to, a re- again, and this is where, again, I will give Robinson credit. There's a lot of social science references where he's actually talking about something real, or it's clear that he's read at least a little bit about this. Um, so Nansen passports were passports that were issued by the League of Nations during the interwar period for what was a large number of refugees during this time. And they were treated as real passports by other countries. So it was a, a way in which... Re- it would it's be hard to implement because countries yes. like being countries a lot of the time. Right. Also, yep. just as it, it comes to me, there is a brief mention of like nationalist parties and like <laughs> they have trouble with refugees and that's it. <laughs> I mean, I would like to believe that Trumpism have, would be completely, you know, vanquished, vanquished yeah. by 2060. But, like... Yeah. Let me put it this way. Here's the way I would would put it. Like, to give Robinson a little credit, like, in India... That which starts the novel, mm-hmm. you know, there's this massive heat wave that kills millions, which does lead to the And BJP that's believable. That is actually And that's believable. believable. Right. That was like so all I think I, I think we I think we would agree. All we were asking for was something along that line. Like you could quibble with that, but like the idea that a mass ecological catastrophe would delegitimize the major nationalist party, I totally buy that. Totally fair. Willing to go along with that. But that's the most detail he provides in terms of any kind of political or social change. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of how it happens. And so that's that's a big problem. Yes. Yes. We have to okay. move on, Dan. 
Yeah. Let's go on to Act 3, the one with the hard science. So, if all these countries decided to embrace stopping climate change, how do you think they go about doing it? I'm glad you asked, Anna. Uh, <laughs> because here's what happens. Some countries like India engage in just unilateral geoengineering. Um, so they basically put particulates in the air that I think are described as like a double pin of tubo in terms of offering some temporary cooling. Water in melting glaciers is shot up aerosol style and converted back into snow slash ice. And if you want to know more about how that works, read this read book. Read this book. <laughs> yeah, that is that is without question the most detail provided among any of the myriad yeah. chapters is, is the stuff on that. Yeah. Airplanes after crash day are replaced with dirigibles. <laughs> the Arctic Ocean is painted yellow to reflect more light back in, you know, to the atmosphere and thereby preventing more uh, melting of ice. Global population declines. That's literally a sentence, I believe, in the book. And this is in the throwaway section about women where they're like, and it's been shown, you know, uh, lower reproduction rates and better, you know, status for women is good for the planet. And it's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you get there? <laughs> yeah. So in addition to travel by airship or... Dirigible. There is also travel by sailing ships and high-speed rail. In fact, there is literally what's almost like a travel brochure oh, yeah. in which Mary has to get from Zurich to San Francisco <laughs> to meet with central bankers. It's actually it works and as a travel. I'm like, I would do that. That sounds fun. Yeah, uh, maybe, but we'll talk All about right, this a little okay. bit later. And then there is finally something called the Half Earth Project, in which I believe half the Earth is supposed to be left to the animals. And there's something called the Internet of Animals, which I still don't quite know what that is after having read the book, but it's there. Anna, I could go on, but to be honest, I got super bored with these sections of the books. I got angry at the social science part. This just put me to sleep. You know, is this me or is writing Tom Clancy style tech prose about climate change just inherently boring? I think it must be interesting to some people. Like, I hope so. Like, it must be interesting to Kim Stanley Robinson. Like, I mean, well, yeah, clearly. Yes. You know, and, and there were parts of this that I enjoyed. As you know, it is my, it's one of my duties on this podcast to shout dog or kitty <laughs> when there are. You know, domestic animal, domestic companion animals in a in a book or movie that we talk about, and there is a scene that involves sheepdogs. Yes, and but so, that was the only one I believe that involved a dog. Yes, well, no, mean, there's a, there's a when they have like the Earthwide Gaia celebration at the end. Oh, of the Gaia book, Day. There's, that's right. There's yes, some yes. dogs, but Dan, you bring up a good point. <laughs> Where the fuck are the pets in this novel? <laughs> this this is obviously a niche issue. But yeah, as a to be fair, Anna, I have to point out Frank would have been a horrible pet. Oh, oh sure, 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 sure. But okay, as okay. a pet person, as a dog mom, proud dog mom, and in someone who does not have children, this is something I kind of am interested in because it's an because I also care about the environment, and mm -hmm. a lot of environmentalists don't like pets. Like there is a fairly good argument that pets are bad mm. for the planet. You did not mention everyone going vegetarian uh, in the list of things. Yeah, I actually I'm not even sure. That the must the have been intentional, said, the intentional it. release of mad cow disease. 
Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> forgot about that one. That is yeah. a thing that happens in the book is that Oh, and then there was the the I forgot the the like swarm pods that attack naval ships. I can't even remember what they Oh, yeah, called. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, like there, mini drones or something. There's um so people become vegetarians and be yeah. it's one of the reasons why things get better. And one of the reasons why some people object to pets is that Pets eat meat, too. Dogs and cats right. eat a lot of meat. Yeah. Cats also, famously, Jonathan Franzen, I believe, wrote that piece in New Yorker about how cats are bad for the environment, where it's mentioned mm-hmm. when he talks about bird. He's a bird guy. And I actually, I looked this up because I was curious. Owning a medium-sized dog can have a similar carbon footprint to a large SUV. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't want to know that, Anna. I, God, well, I'm not okay. sure if it's true, but I just, you know, like it would, it, it seems like a, a big lacuna, let's say. Like, I, I feel like it, it, he addresses so much. I just, and also because pets are so much a part of my life, I guess. And because one of the <laughs> things that he does try to do, I think, is get into how people's daily lives would be changed by some of these policies. Right. It's not always that interesting, but that's what he's interested in, right? Yeah. So another animal thing, he mentions as an aside, reintroducing a resuscitated version of the woolly mammoth. <laughs> Wait, I thought that was a joke. That was real? Okay. I believe it's real, and I just want to hear very well could more be. about yeah. it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. Yep. And then yep. this is, I think, kind of important. The geoengineering just all works. Like, it's just... <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? Like it just, yeah, it just, yeah. it either doesn't succeed in the way they want it to, or it just works. There's no bad unintended consequences, right? And this seems yes. unlikely, to say the least. I think you've read Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky. No, no, it's good. No, it's I've read very about it, but I know it's good. Yeah, super yeah. depressing. Um, with friends like these, did a podcast episode about it. I don't know why I put that as though that's not my podcast, but. I interviewed her for an episode of With Friends Like These. And she's interesting because she's perfectly aware of how depressing all of her writing is. And she's Mm. just kind of like, I don't know. Like, I just try to get through day to day. (laughs) But. I bet she goes on vacations, too. I bet she does, too. Anyway, it's about all the unintended consequences that come with humans trying to fix the environment. And they're all pretty terrifying. So. Um, like there is a very the cloud seeding thing. The short version is the movie Snowpiercer could happen, right? Like that's. <laughs> when- and in fact, I I I think the novel, or maybe he gave this in an interview. He references Snowpiercer at some point. I know he has, where it's like it was so stupid that everyone believed the Snowpiercer thing could be real. Well, no, I believe that there's some pretty good science, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, because we yeah. don't know, because the fucking the system that is the globe is so fucking complicated. Like, again, this is something you'd think as someone who's interested in systems, you know, Robinson would be more aware of and interested in, which is the more complicated a system is, the more change that can happen when you fuck with one little tiny part of it, right? So they do all these different geoengineering projects. Mm -hmm. That's And they all work out. And they all work out. All totes work out. And then lastly, oh, go ahead. The one thing I will say in his defense on this was that he was right to point out that, like, the word geoengineering needs to be rethought oh, sure, because sure. in some ways it's like it's like genetically modified foods in which we genetically modify foods all the time. It's just a question of how we do it. And similarly, when you're geoengineering the climate, you know, climate, there are small ways you do it and potentially I mean, big, you could scary say ways like to do it. Cars are yeah. geoengineering on some level. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. So that, but yeah, so that, but go ahead. But yes. there's interfering with large systems. I think that would be the way that I would make interfering the with large system is, is yeah, is, that's 
And your caution is well taken. Yeah. Yeah. And then my last point on the hard science is where are the pandemics? Nope. No pandemics in this novel. Yeah, I mean, it's just having done the end of October, which we both really enjoyed, right? Yeah. By the way, interesting to compare the two. Yes, in that one was the one that we enjoyed. It's <laughs> one. That we well, except that because yeah. they have they have similar projects, right? Yeah, yeah. And because Lawrence Wright is a nonfiction writer, right? He is a reporter, mm-hmm. and he wrote a novel. <laughs> that is a, it's novel. a better novel than this one. Yes. That is a that's novel. An actual novel. That's an actual novel, and it, by the way, has a hell of a plot twist at the end, which I really like. Plot you know, and again. lots of science. That yes. it, it gets told yeah. through people. Like that's actually right. a huge thing that Robinson does. That's you know I, I would say a mistake, which is that some of the science is told from the point of view of an actual person. Like I can't right. remember the name of the um, glacier specialist, the glaciologist, or whoever he is that comes up with. Oh, the one who dies. Yeah, one who dies for no reason. Like there's there's a yeah, random death in this in this book that just. Yeah. No plot, no reason, just happens. But yeah. he has a personality of sorts, and he talks about the mm-hmm. glacier stuff, and it's sort of interesting when you hear it through the per- you know through a person because he's enthusiastic right. about it, right? Yes, exactly. A lot of the science in this book is just told passive voice, third person. Like, there's a lot of passive voice in yeah. this novel. So, all right, let's <sighs> close with Act Four, Anna, the one with the weird interstitial chapters. Mm. I've saved the best for last, Anna. This book's 108 chapters also contain brief sections from the point of view of a variety of minor characters, but also chapters written from the perspective of a photon, a carbon atom, the market, history, and then there are various rants, and I'm sorry, but that's what they are, about economics. Anna, I'm checking my notes, and I see that when he got to the chapter on mon- modern monetary theory, I wrote "kill me now" in the margins. To embody <laughs> Chandler Bing you're, for a moment, really going hard what? on the friends thing here, yeah. Yep, I yeah, because I, I was like, what is the thing that is the exact opposite of this book? And that was what I came up with. To embody Chandler Bing for a second, Anna, could Robinson be any more didactic <laughs> in this book? Could he be any more vitriolic towards social scientists? Anna, what was your favorite chapter also? So, Dan, are you telling me you didn't enjoy the description of a carbon atom's descent to Earth as being described like what you would call an orgasm? No, Anna, I did. Well, I guess I enjoyed it. Nope, nope, Nope. it didn't work for me. It is the only orgasm in the book. (laughs) So, there's that. Yes. I personally, as a non-economist, <laughs> enjoyed some of the ripping on economists. I thought that was kind of funny because, you know, money is fake. And as far as descriptions of modern monetary theory go, it's not a bad description. You know, and it's also, a... if you're one of my fellow money is fake believers, <laughs> yeah. there are parts of this novel that you will, yeah, yeah that I kind of could cheer along with in that... So wait, I want to push back a little bit. It's it's not that... Here's the way I would put it. I agree. Money is fake. Money is a social construction. Yeah. There is no denying that. I am willing to embrace that. And I think the problem I have with Robinson is that, he, like many freshmen <laughs> who get exposed to the idea that this is a, you know, social construct, right. they think it's a social construct. Oh, my God. 
That means it's plastic. We can totally change it. It'll be so easy. And that's the right. Part where oh, yes. He loses me. You're right. And that's my point. And what that's, I will say is, I is. found the Carboni or Carboni thing really yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that actually and was interesting. I agree. I thought yeah. it for me actually crystallized or or made me think about modern monetary theory in a way that I was like, oh yeah, like you could value the future. That's how you mm -hmm. create the value for this made up right. currency, right? Because yeah. can't we all agree that the future is worth whatever amount of money we declare mm -hmm. it to be, right? right? That makes a lot more sense to me than just sort of the typical description of modern monetary theory, which is just print more money. <laughs> right. <laughs> Woohoo, yeah. you know, and I, cause I agree mm -hmm. that's, that's problematic. You've got to have a system or a way of thinking about money that's a new way of thinking about it, right? Like, you can't just be right. like, and it's fake. Yes. The end. It, you know what it is? It would be like uh, the end of Foundation, where Harry Seldon comes down and, like, solves the, the <laughs> you know. Remember that scene where he just solves the, the, yeah. the centuries-long conflict between two people by telling him a little story, then, oh, okay, now we realize it. Yeah. That There's an element of that to, to right. when Robinson and, talks yeah. about this. I story. mean, I don't, I'm not an economist, so I can't talk super specifically about the problems with MMT, yeah. but, like, the Carboni did make me think about it a little differently. So, yay, mm -hmm. I, le I learned something. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to get back to the sort of the erasure of activists and, and people. Because these inter they were crowded out by the carbon. They atom. were. Um, <laughs> there are places, there, there are chapters where we hear from activists mm -hmm. and sort of normal people, and we could have gotten more information, like the China one billion people protesting scene. Mm -hmm. And instead, we get just even more passive voice from the people who are participating in the protests. And <laughs> I'm going to read a section, mm -hmm. and this is this is a section that's from. One of the protests, there's lots of like cooperative movements, and I don't even remember which one this is from. He's very big on the cooperative movements, yes. So, solidarity. There's no feeling like it. People talk about it. They use the word. They write about it. They try to invoke it, naturally. But to really feel it, you have to be a part of a wave in history. You can't just get it by wanting it. You can't call for it and make it come. You can't choose it. It chooses you. It arrives like a wave picking you up. It's a feeling. How can I say it? I'll just stop there. How can you say it? Because yes. <laughs> what he does in that little section is basically say, yeah, so, yep, the solidarity happened. And I can't yep. tell you how. It's like an admission of defeat to say, <laughs> I can't tell you how solidarity happened. You just have to be a part of a wave in history, Dan. Just gotta just, that's how you enact social change. It chooses you. <laughs> and I, you know. That's the ultimate passive voice. Right. But yes. Tell that to Greta Thornburg. I mean, like, she she chose history. You know? Like, history did not choose her. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Great man. It's complicated. But there are people who take action who make other people pay attention. You know? Right. Well, actually. There are leaders. And there are activists. And you know what? Those characters can sometimes be really good in novels, I hear. <laughs> like, that would actually work. <laughs> or just a person who gets caught up in this feeling of solidarity and talks about yeah. why. Not just right. like, and I started to feel the solidarity. The solidarity <laughs> happened. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of things happening, Dan. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this book? <laughs> Fuck you, Anna. No, I'm sorry. 
I'll take it, Dan. Like, honestly, do you want to skip this section? I'm so tempted to. I I am so tempted to say literally that finding the international relations is left as an exercise to the listener because that is almost the exact sentence that Robinson uses twice in this novel. Again, novel I'm using in quotes. Yep. But okay, I'm just going to say it. The IR in this book is so hand-wavy, I honestly don't know what to do with it. So we should talk about a couple of things. Because first of all, the terrorism angle is honestly the most interesting and disturbing portion of this book. Because there is no other way to interpret what he is saying than to say that the only way that his sort of optimistic outcome happens is through the actions of terrorism. Mm-hmm. I mean, the children of Kali plus the, apparently the Black Ops unit of the Ministry for the Future <laughs> the UN pushes Black Ops. <laughs> the UN, like, 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 you know, when it's like I mean this sincerely on I'm actually stunned that conservatives have it like dogpiled on this book. Because this book actually contains a lot of stuff that it would legitimately well, in theory. Well, it's also fucking vague. Well, I guess conspiracy theories are vague, but it's I mean it I'm listeners. It's I'm not rough. vague. There's very explicitly well, in that no, black there's very explicitly like yeah. terrorism, but like, what yeah. is it? How? Who does it? Like, yeah, yeah. How does it happen? Like, but it's more. Like, where are right. the if FEMA can... camps, Dan? That's what I'm saying. Oh, there it is. <laughs> but the FEMA camps were apparently like done in Montana. Like, there is that chapter right. where like the Montana. You know, well, the town the decides. Okay. Oh no, no, wait! Yeah. That's not the sheepdog one. That's the no, that's not the one. sheepdog. That's the that is no. There's there... that is the forcible, uh, not forcible, but like they. There is it is forced relocation. It's basically yes. like, yes. yeah. So, yeah, no, there's actually stuff that happens in this novel that if you're a Glenn Beck type conservative, you would get outraged about and you don't have to distort it to get outraged about it, is my point. So, you know, it is interesting. God, no one tell Glenn Beck about this book. No. I know. Like, it is legit. Because he would be like, it, Obama liked it. Yes, This there is you go. the plan. Oh, yeah. shit, man. And, you know, like, I guess the thing is, is that what would have been interesting would have been a genuine debate about whether, about, as you said before, how we should feel about this. Like, what does it mean if violent non-state actors or violent international governmental organizations, I guess, are responsible? Like, does climate change actually need, you know, is it only going to grow out of the power of the barrel of the gun? And I don't know that. But it's not really debated. It's just sort of accepted as, oh, yeah, that's one of the drivers. So that's fine. Second, where the fuck is the United States in this book? And I don't mean that in a sense of the U.S. should be the good guys in every novel. I do not mean that. The U.S. would undeniably be the bad guy in this novel, and yet the U.S. government just sort of passively lets all this happen? I find this hard to believe. I really do. Dan, I mean, there is... yeah. They enact a 10 to 1 income uh, oh, ratio. I read it. It happens. That yeah. I believe it's written like that. It's a passive voice. There's a, And even I, I mean, like, really? 10 to 1? Like, yeah. <laughs> when Anna was like, you know, I think it could be a little more on equality than that. Yeah. That tells you when you lost Anna on the income inequality argument, that indicates you've gone a little further, you know, to the end. Which, well, by the way, I just this- had trouble. Ble- like, that's where you start. Like, yeah. OK, fair enough. OK. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Like, I don't. The, but but actually, I I'm sincere about this. I was actually legitimately offended in this book about the discussions of Soviet style communism and China. Mm. Like, there was this belief of, oh, finally, everyone realizes that the Soviet system works. There is this, you know, praise at various points about Cuba in terms of addressing climate change. China is treated as a mostly benign actor. And look, I will be very happy to concede all of capitalism's ills in terms of contributing to climate change. 
just so long as Robinson had acknowledged that the communists were actually worse on this point, I mean, the degree to which the Soviets actually bespoiled the environment, that was one of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed, was because of environmental and ecological damage. Similarly with China, they've gotten a little bit better, but, like, they're burning coal, you know, far more quickly than any other country. And again, it's not, it, it, it's just weird that it's not discussed at all. He has a brief moment at the beginning where he does sort of talk about how, yeah, India was not a great player for climate change, but other countries have built up far worse. And I thought, okay, you at least addressed it. That's fine. But the Soviet stuff was just abysmal. I'm sorry. Well, they resist though, right? Like aren't of all the, you know, quote unquote great powers, like the Soviets are the ones that resist the most. In fact- You mean the Russians, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, the news lately. Um. I know, yes, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, they're the ones that resist the most. Um, although it's also true, Russia has kind of the most to lose. Not the most, but yeah. like, I mean, permafrost melting is right. very bad. Like. Right, which is something that I think they're only beginning to, like, it's only been in the last couple of years that that's become suddenly a a, a paramount issue. But yeah, it, it basically, I, you know, he has this view of red plenty that I don't even think Marxists <laughs> believe in, is the way I would put it. Yeah, I'm enough of an enthusiast of capitalism so that I was actually, like, morally appalled by those sections of the book. I want to see climate change addressed, and... I will give him credit. Like, he does essentially suggest that the way it's solved is this sort of Faustian bargain between the Ministry for the Future and central bankers. And, mm -hmm. and it's clear that's actually a more realpolitik sort of assessment. But by and large, I, I, I'm just going to quote Frank Fukuyama, re, you know, reviewed this book, and I'm, I'm going to read this passage now. All of these outcomes are so ludicrously unrealistic that I am led to suspect that the author's intention is actually different. Is he really trying to show that we cannot possibly get to effective, seriously effective climate policies without resorting to violence and authoritarian practices? This can only happen, the events in the book, because in this book, populations around the world complain a bit, but ultimately acquiesce to the sacrifices and disruptions brought about by a tiny group of technocrats. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's a fantastically unreal, like, this is the fiction in the book. The fiction in the book is that the things would happen yeah. with just the sort of passive voice that he suggested. And I'm sorry, it's just bad. It was bad <laughs> and in many ways uninteresting. And it just makes me angry at all the book, the book all over again. Sorry. So, Anna. Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? <laughs> Dan. <laughs> I grew so large that I ate the world. <laughs> and all the blood in the world is mine. What am I? You know, even though you are like everything else and you see me from the inside. I am the market. I guess what I'm trying to say, Dan, is that I'm a capitalist now. Yes! <laughs> Victory is mine! Sorry. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, I, as someone who's incredibly sympathetic mm -hmm. to the politics of this book, I think that's one of the reasons I was frustrated, right? I want to mm -hmm. know how we do this shit, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I'm so, you know, I, I'm angry about the erasure of activists. I'm angry about the hand-waving because I want some of these things to happen, right? Yes. Not all of them. I want few. I, 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 I want fewer of these things to but, happen, but I want some of these things yeah, to happen. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. and he. I mean, he really does seem to indicate in this very morally blank way 
that it's terrorism. And that is now that I think about it, like I'm offended by that. I have a Glenn Beck style reaction almost because like to just present that with no philosophical, you know, or moral wrestling Mm -hmm. is abhorrent. It is. Like I mentioned Edward Abbey earlier, like in, in Wendell Berry as well, like there are people who have tried to grapple with the idea that direct action and sometimes violent direct action might be the thing that needs to happen. Right? Right. It's a fucking real question. It, yeah. it really is. And one Particularly of the, on something as difficult as climate change. So oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, th- yeah. And, and one of the ways that he starts to go in a direction where I feel like, oh, this could be a way of thinking about this, is this idea of the ministry of the future, is if we consider ourselves fighting on behalf of the country of the future, right? Right. Like the lives of the people not yet born, do they deserve representation? Do they deserve to be protected mm-hmm. as other innocents are protected? Right. Mm -hmm. Like we're also head up about Ukraine, justifiably. Mm -hmm. There are people now (laughs) who will suffer because of the actions we are taking. To what extent are we willing to use violence or authoritarian measures or whatever you want to say to protect those people? Mm -hmm. It's a real question. And this book... (laughs) fails and it also is disappointing right on a artistic level i mean this is obviously less important but that would be interesting dan yeah it would be actually (laughs) like to have characters wrestle with this yes interesting just imagine it (laughs) an interesting novel i don't know what it was been it's been so long anna oh god and the only person that really kind of even has any moment of trying to figure out like is this the right thing to do is frank who Mm -hmm. is quite literally not right in the head you Mm -hmm. know and who's who and and i will say of all the of the two characters of all the characters of the two characters (laughs) of the two two characters i think frank is pretty well done like you Mm -hmm. said he's thin and it's true but like as someone who has some um traumatic stress in my life his Mm -hmm. sort of musings about post-traumatic stress disorder are pretty sensitive let's say Mm -hmm. but he's the only person who you you don't even get you know badim we said like that would be such an interesting character to get an insight on Mm -hmm. you know because he's apparently in charge of the black bag operations right we get this hint that they accidentally killed someone at some point or more than one person like right. there's some like oh we did make a mistake. Okay, more. <laughs> you know. No, that's what's what's weird about this novel is that like there are big events that happen. There are people who are, you know, killed, there are potential assassination attempts that are failed. It's clear that Robinson thinks that like oil companies or I don't know, the deep state or capital would fight back also through violent action. Mm-hmm. What is interesting to me is that in the novel that just sort of happens. We never find out who actually did it. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice. And I guess maybe there's there's novels where not knowing who did something leads to interesting implications. This is not one of those novels. Like, it would have actually been appropriate to have, like, I don't know, some big fat cat finally say, fine, I surrender. Or make a villain and, like, then actually, you know, potentially give a satisfying kill to him in some ways of, of to justify the terrorism or mm-hmm. something. I'm not sure. 
All I know is that in the novel that we're reading, it's just so lifeless. Mm-hmm. Dan! Oh my god! It's, it's, oh! All those planes! It's glaciers! Oh, I thought it was glaciers! Okay, it's planes! Oh, no. Everything! All the things falling yes. apart! It's the yeah. debris field. Dan, we've talked a lot. I don't know how much we have left to talk about, what we have left out, but I know there's got to be a few things. So what do you got? Okay, I was trying to think of something I actually liked about this book because there wasn't a lot. I did like the ending. I liked the last paragraph. It was a lovely piece of writing. I'm, I'm going to leave it to the, the listener to find out what it is. And really, I suggest only you read that last page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did like the fact that, that you know, Robinson really does care about this issue and did read a lot about things like uh, you were talking about the PTSD, the fact that he mentions cognitive behavioral therapy as a mm-hmm. way to treat PTSD that is accurate. And, you know, there's a lot of things he says here that are accurate. That said, here are the things that I texted to Anna uh, in describing this book as I was reading it. It's like World War Z, but written by an actual UN functionary. It's like Bertolt Brecht, but, you know, really leaning into the didacticism. It's like Wikipedia entries, but with worse prose and less accuracy. Because, for example, the U.S. does not, in fact, as Robinson implies, spend more on its military than the rest of the world combined. He does get some facts right, but he also is, is sloppy at times. That's it. I got nothing else. I, I don't want to talk about this book again anymore. <laughs> Anna, what about you? It's irritable. <laughs> <Dirigible. laughs> I like to say it that way. It's fun. It's good. Yes. I also would like to visit Zurich now. It seems like a really cool city. Like, very beautiful. Yeah. The travel log. See, I actually guess I, I liked some of the travel log stuff. I found myself looking up some of the places that Mary visits when she's in the Alps. Mm. There's one village. I sent you pictures of it. It looks yeah. really beautiful. Like, I yeah. would like to go to there, you know? <laughs> I will say, I maybe this is sexist to me. I actually did like the line where Mary just says, I just like to be your girlfriend. Yeah, I thought is, that was very sweet. Cute. That was extremely sweet. I, I did like that. Yeah. And there is some beautiful writing. And I'm actually going to read a little bit because I don't want to make people read the book. <laughs> Fair enough. So we hear somewhat unsatisfyingly and tangentially that Mary is a widow. One of the many mm-hmm. kind of not very like, oh, yeah, yeah, OK, there's that about her. Yep. When Frank is dying, though, she I mentioned this actually before. She sits with him and has these thoughts about attending to people who are passing. There was a tendency to range widely in these situations, she had found, as if sitting on the edge of a cliff, with a view out to the edge of the world, like the cliffs of Moher, but even higher. The sidewalk over the abyss, as Virginia Woolf had put it, sitting on the edge of that sidewalk with one's feet kicking in the empty air, staring down into the abyss or out at the horizon or back at the sidewalk that had seemed so important as they walked it, now revealed as a gossamer strip through careless air. Hmm. That's lovely. Yeah. And then this is after Frank passes. And I, this is going to stick with me, honestly. Um, it was so hard to imagine that a mind could be gone. All those thoughts that you never tell anyone, all those dreams, all that entire pocket universe, gone. That is nice. But you know what? Ooh. I'm going to, I'm not going to lie. I think I skipped over, like, it might have been, by that point, I was. <laughs> so angry. 
I was so angry that I was, or like it was, I was like, just get to the end. I, I just wanted the novel to end. So yeah, like I mean, it, it's frustrating that perhaps I missed those. No, sections, I mean, that's yes. it's the most emotionally resonant part of the book. It's the only emotionally resonant part of the book. Although actually, I will say, you know, I, I told I've told people in the Discord, and I think other I think our AMAs that I read the first chapter of this book a long time ago and had to put it down because it was really upsetting. It's a chapter of the heat wave. Now that I think about it, that's actually one of the better done pieces in the book. It's a real, it is, feels like there's stakes, although mm-hmm. there aren't very many characters. It is, there's, yeah. there's tension, mm-hmm. you know, will these people survive, you know? Right. And then this last, and then that other part with him um, passing and Mary thinking about it, that's, that's, those yeah. are the two places where like you have some, some kind of emotion to like get a toehold on, you know? Right. Yeah. And I do think the carbon coin is a neat idea. Like I just, yeah. I, I, worth I, exploring. I it emailed happen, the paper to my dad. You know, my okay. dad works in risk and, uh, you know, actually did a lot of work with cat bonds, which <laughs> are not related to felines. They're catastrophe bonds mature upon um, yeah. the catastrophe happening in interesting ways of monetizing risk. All I'm going to say is that, again, the meeting with the central bankers, that was about as realistic as 2012 in terms of the way that, <laughs> you know, heads of state or whatever are consulted. So, yeah, I'll close with that. Okay. And we're never reading another book recommended by <laughs> Obama ever again. Just... Yes. Otto and I are done with this shit. We are done with it between this and the three body problem, which I think it is safe to say both Anna and oh, I liked a lot sure. more than this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, these, I, I mean, people ask why I'm disappointed. I thought he was a nerd. I thought he was <laughs> one of us. But, you know, uh, because he like he likes Game of Thrones, right? Like, yeah. that was, I think, my yeah. only... And also, like, he sort of seems like he wants to appear like a nerd on some level, but he's he not can a nerd. Be a, I, no, he's... I, I, all right. Here, well, he's I, not I'll a nerd about science fiction, I guess. He's not a nerd about science fiction. He's, about, he's a nerd about a lot of things, and I, th- you know, like, I don't want to disgrace you know disrepute the former president's nerd status but on sci-fi no he's not a nerd no no No. he's one of those people there is there i mean the reason this podcast exists is because there is the venn diagram of people who are interested in politics and people who are interested in science fiction like there's not quite a circle right Right. but it's we've both found in our you know travels in our professional lives like it is interesting to me i've always found it interesting that there are so many people who are genuine, like science fiction fan, like not just like interested, but like, and across the ideological spectrum, yeah, also add, yeah, yeah, people absolutely. who are yes. really passionate about science fiction who wind up working in politics on some level, yeah. So I guess I did assume that about Obama, right? Because it it is so mm-hmm. common. Fucking Ted Cruz is a genuine nerd, right? Yeah. About science fiction, like, yeah, yeah, true. hateful human being, right? But yeah, but he and I have talked at length. <laughs> about Watchmen, <laughs> Star Trek. Interesting. Oh yeah, you haven't, I didn't, you know, I've interviewed the guy like five times. Uh, I know. This, this will this will have to go to another podcast. Though. Yeah, I have many opinions and insights on Ted Cruz. And what, but one of them I'll say is he's genuinely loves science fiction and likes to talk about it. You know, <laughs> not true with Obama. Nope. So uh, that's about it for the show. Uh, appreciate y'all staying with us um i know that there are listeners who appreciate ksr and i don't want to rob them of their joy or imply anything about their taste everyone loves what they love you know 
and and we did not love this. Though. We did not love this. I think probably I found a few more redeeming qualities than Dan did, and I think we're gonna have to you know wash our brains out with something, something else. <laughs> like we have doing Contact, which will be good, and Train to Busan, and then I think I, those I wanna, will both be good. We should try to find a genuinely awesome Cli-Fi novel. Yeah. We will have to be on the search for that. We will ask our uh, listeners in the Discord to perhaps suggest one. Yeah. And until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>